but either way, there's sharks in uh, J Bay. There's a lot of them. So yeah. I was in the water and I swam in right before it was uh, Kelly Slater versus Mick Fanning in the semi. And right after their semi, I swam in because I knew I had to shoot the final and get like the winner getting chaired up the beach and everything. So I went in and I went to the top of the tower above the judges and above the the whole contest site. And uh, I was up there. So he gets, I look down and I see it. He's just getting drug underwater fighting the shark. And I'm, I just immediately started taking photos. I got a photo of him like where he's actually underwater. Welcome to Badass Digital Nomads, where we're pushing the boundaries of remote work and travel, all while staying grounded with a little bit of old school philosophy, self-development, and business advice from our guests. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kristen Wilson from Traveling with Kristen. And today's episode of Badass Digital Nomads is an interview with my little brother, Jimmy Jimmicane Wilson, who probably has the coolest life that you can dream up. Jimmy is a world-renowned surf photographer and former photo editor at Surfing Magazine. He's also a writer, editor, cinematographer, and now works as the online content editor for Vans Surf. Jimmy is best known for his photography, however, having shot amazing photos of the best surfers in the world at the best surf spots in the world, and more than a few bikini models as well. Jimmy is also a two-time Red Bull Illume finalist, which is the world's largest action and adventure sports photography contest, having won the new creativity category in the event's first year back in 2007 at only 21 years old. He then went on to submit what was said to be one of the most iconic images of the 2013 event with a shot of multiple times world champion Kelly Slater at the US Open. These days, when he's not traveling the world on a photography mission or for van surf, Jimmy works from home in Cardiff by the Sea, California, where he lives with his daughter. I interviewed him for this episode at our parents' house in St. Augustine Beach over Memorial Day weekend, right before his 35th birthday. In this episode, he shares what a day in the life of a surf photographer is like, including some crazy stories from his travels around the world, including that time he was swimming in the water right before Mick Fanning got attacked on camera by a great white shark in South Africa. He also shares how he got started in surf photography as just a little kid and how earning his first $15 as a photographer led to his subsequent career. He also reminisces about how he funded his side hustle by painting houses in Puerto Rico and gives advice on how to reinvent yourself when circumstances force your industry to change or your job to go extinct. He has plenty of tips and advice for carving your own path in the world, regardless of your career. And even though Jimmy is my younger brother, I've always learned a lot from him, and I hope you do too. Enjoy. What did we do today, Jimmy? We just got done surfing down in the Anastasia State Park, riding bikes down the beach for like, I don't know, five hours or something. <laughs> yeah, we woke up at 5 a.m. and we got to the beach. We got to our friend's house by like six and then we got, we rode our bikes for at least I think it was almost 45 minutes to get down there. Yeah, it was a little high tide, so the sand was soft. So we went to the end of this state park and went surfing because there was rare swell in St. Augustine. And we surfed for like five hours and then we rode our bikes all the way back. And so we're exhausted, <laughs> exhausted and delirious, but we're doing this. Um. Can you just tell us, like, I know you've done a lot of stuff in life, but what is just your bio in a nutshell? Like, just tell people just a little bit about your background and what you do. Um, yeah, I guess mostly I would just consider myself a photographer. That's probably what 
I mean, that's been my job and that's what's taken me on my career and, um, you know, pretty much given me a purpose in life. But, um, other than that, I've, I worked for a couple magazines, Eastern Surf Magazine. I was the photo editor for a couple of years and then Surfing Magazine. I was assistant photo editor and then eventually photo editor and um, also did a bit of writing here and there and kind of just tried to pretty much be able to do anything in a editorial realm that would keep me getting a paycheck. <laughs> Would you consider yourself a freelancer in a way? Well, now I'm 100% a freelancer because Surfing Magazine died uh, January 2017. So after that, I went full freelance and um, I work for Vans Surf mostly, but I'm just a contractor so I can kind of do jobs for other things and I work from home. So I'm pretty flexible. How many different revenue streams would you say that you have? Well, now not so many because there's not that many places you're getting a paycheck in the surfing world. It's pretty much on, on Instagram and nobody really wants to pay for Instagram photos or videos that often. So I get a couple of random sales here and there, uh, some print sales, and uh, but my main job is through vans now, and that's what I concentrate on. Like almost all my time, all my time goes to them. So things right now are a little bit weird because of uh, you know the obvious coronavirus. But what was your life like before? the pandemic and then what has it been like over the past couple months in California? Like take us through kind of a day in your life at home before and then also when you're on the road. Well, mostly um, I do the social media for Vans, so for the surf account. So I'm doing stuff for that every day and I can kind of work that out at any point in the day that I have time. Um, Sometimes I work late at night. Sometimes I work in the morning, whatever. It just changes. But um, the other part of the job is traveling, going to all the events. So we have the Duct Tape Invitational and Duct Tape Festival, a longboard uh, competition inspired by Joel Tudor. And then there's a festival portion of that, which is just an added element with shapers and um, some vendors and music and just added fun to those events. So I go to all those. There's the Vans US Open every year in Huntington Beach and um, the Vans Triple Crown on the North Shore. I spend a month on the North Shore of Hawaii every year. Um, and then there's a, uh, trips in between there for uh, swells, random storms in any of the oceans that send a good swell or there's a campaign or whatever. So it's a lot of traveling since this pandemic, there's been zero traveling. <laughs> so yeah, I've basically been home for longer than I've ever been home since I was in high school. And have you been working at home or? Yeah. I always work from home or I mean yeah. from the road if I'm on the road. How many countries have you been to now? I don't even know. I have no idea. I think I tried writing some down, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, but a lot of the countries have been like repeat countries. So yeah. how many times have I been to Australia or Indonesia? Probably been to each of those like over a dozen times. Yeah, that's true. I remember when you first started traveling, like when we were teenagers, right? Mostly like Puerto Rico or Central America. Yeah. Was that your first trip, Puerto Rico? First surf trip was to Puerto Rico. First photo trip was to Puerto Rico. And then I lived in Puerto Rico for a bit too. So pretty much everything yeah. starting my career in photography was in Puerto Rico, not Florida, because Florida is not a good place to be a surf photographer. <laughs> no, there's not so many waves here. 
I mean, even though it's changed a lot and uh, now it's even harder to be a surf photographer, but like, how old were you when you knew that's what you wanted to do? Probably sophomore year of high school. So what is that? 16? Mm -hmm, 15, 16? Yeah. I think that's whenever I really dove into it. Is that when you had your first photo published or was it before then? I think it was before. It was pretty much right on the same time period. It was, I got a camera, I shot a roll of film for a surf station ad, which is a surf shop here. And uh, they sent the photos in to Eastern Surf Magazine. I got an ad and then I also got a little photo published in their letters page. And so I got a check for like $15. I'm like, oh, cool. I can buy like two more rolls of film. <laughs> so then I did that and got a water housing and started taking some pictures in the water. And I think like the first roll of film, second roll of film, I was getting, I got multiple photos published. And that's when I was like, okay, this is, this is cool. I really like this and it's working somehow. So I should probably just pursue that. And it just kind of took off from there pretty early on. Weren't your first photos with um, those disposable cameras or what were you using for the, oh, no, or was had, it dad's camera? I bought camera? like a legit camera. Um, I bought like a Canon. I can't even remember the, the model it was, but I bought like a decent camera that was fast enough to shoot uh, sequences and shoot surfing stuff and got just a water housing and a fisheye lens. That was my first lens, a fisheye. So just swimming with a fisheye, which is, you know, like I probably do that maybe once or twice a year now, but that was all I had to start. Yeah. I remember seeing you in your bedroom, like just reading the Canon manual when we, I must've been probably 13 or 14. I was in high school still. And you would just be like in your room with the manual out teaching yourself photography and I always was kind of like, I was so proud of you, but I was also jealous in a way because I never knew what to do. And I was like, man, Jimmy knows exactly what he wants to do. And I had no idea. So I just went to college and was like winging it. But um, I kind of want to talk about that for a second. Like you knew from high school what you wanted to do. And then there was all this pressure to like go to college and get a normal job. And a lot of the people who listen to the podcast um, quit their jobs to travel more or to start their own businesses or to like make money using their own skills or they want to do that. They want to get out of like a nine to five kind of job. Um, but there can be a lot of perceived risk and like family pressure and career pressure and like sunk costs and all this stuff, all these factors that go into doing that. Um, as like a 17 or 18 year old, how did you deal with the pressure from mom and dad to like go to college and how were you able to pursue your career track from the beginning, even when people were saying, you know, you can't make money doing that or it's not a real job or you need to get a four year degree and blah, blah, blah. Like what was, what was your thought process like? Well, I don't think I didn't want to really, I didn't want to go to college because um, partly because there was no colleges around us where they were near the beach. I mean, you'd have to drive an hour at least or more to go surfing. So right away, I was kind of not into doing that. I wanted to be where I could surf every day. But I just, I to me, it was less of a risk um, to not go to college because you're not investing in wasting not necessarily wasting money, but you're not spending money on tuition and all this stuff and you're getting a jump start on your your career. Like I, I remember one of my teachers in high school was um, talking to us about a doctor. He compared a doctor and a plumber financially and he, he took the plumber who went straight out of high school, started working, worked his way up, uh, to eventually starting his own business. And, and then he took the doctor who went to school for however long, a decade almost. And then he 
by the time their salaries matched, it was like so far into the future. It woke me up to go, okay, well, I definitely don't want to do that. Um, I'd rather just kind of pursue something I want to do anyway, which doesn't require school. But I did go to Daytona Beach Community College, which I think is Daytona State College now, but they have a mm-hmm. photography program there. I did two semesters there. Got a call from Transworld Surf photo editor, Peter Terrace, and he told me, I need you to go to Barbados tomorrow, today, with Kelly Slater and Benji Weatherly. And I was freaking out. You know, that's the best surfer in the world and another top-level surfer and my favorite place in the world to go to. The waves were insane. My teachers were like, you can't go. And I was like, well, I'm going. (laughs) And so I went and then they were, you know, I actually ended up failing a class, not photography, but like a... Like a gen ed class? Yeah. Yeah. Another class in community college that semester because I missed so many days. And I was like, you know what? This is, this is bullshit. Um, My teachers were actually really excited that I loved surf photography and they actually pushed me to go do it they were like you don't need to be here not necessarily because you're like this great photographer but just I don't think I was that at all but just because I already knew what I wanted to do and I was kind of already doing it so yeah from that point on the first week out of school I was like it timed up well with a friend from Puerto Rico Dylan Graves flew myself and a bunch of our friends to Australia um, on his American Airlines miles. <laughs> like he had so many miles that were going to expire. So he flew us all to Australia round trip. And he, and I, he told me, you know, where do you want me to book your ticket? And I said, just book me back to Puerto Rico. I'm moving. So I moved straight to Puerto Rico straight after that. And I had no real plan, but um, it all works out. I guess if you just let it happen. <laughs> How old were you then? I was 19. Yeah. So you're 19 living in Puerto Rico, community college dropout, but like crushing it. I mean, you're doing exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah, I was for a bit. And then I I was not paying much rent down there. It was pretty cheap. I can't even remember. I was staying at my friend Aaron Geiger's house, but, and I was filming and shooting photos of him and the crew down there making a movie called Knock It Off 2. So we did that and then I was getting into summertime, the waves go flat there and I was really struggling for money. I was like painting houses in the ghetto of Aguadilla for like just to make some kind of money. Oh, I forgot about that. It was pretty low. I was I was like, what am I doing really? <laughs> but um, after that, uh, I got a call from the guys at ESM, Dick Mazzarol and Tom Dugan and they offered me a photo editor job at the magazine. I would be the first photo editor since the founder, Dick Mazzarol. And I was 20 years old. That was a really, felt like a really big opportunity that I wasn't maybe ready for. I definitely wasn't ready for actually, (laughs) but you know, I was like, okay, a real job, actual decent money at the time. And I could live with my aunt, in Vero Beach and drive up there. So I just did that for a couple of years. And it was an awesome experience. I got to meet a bunch of people. I got to um, pretty much all the way up the East Coast. I, I feel like I know somebody in nearly every single town up the East Coast for that. And it's like a big family, the East Coast surfing community. Yeah, for sure. They would sure. all like invite you into their house to stay if you needed I've actually never gotten a hotel when I was surfing on the East Coast. I just stayed at people's houses all the time. Yeah, it's great. It's not like that other places. Well, it is other places, but not. it's not like that in California per se. Yeah. So then you worked at ESM for a few years. And then at what point did you move to California? Um, how did that all happen? Well, I got offered a job at Surfing Magazine like a couple months after I started working at Eastern Surf Magazine and I didn't take it because I was like, that would just be so lame to get hired at this and immediately bail. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to put in some time here and then, you know, maybe I'll move on 
eventually. So I put in two years there and then I got re-offered that position as assistant photo editor at Surfing Magazine. And at that point I was ready to get out and go like get on the road more and travel and just kind of experience things as a somebody in their early 20s. Yeah. And you had all of that experience then under your belt from working at ESM and kind of, you were kind of the jack of all trades there too, right? Like you were doing a lot of different responsibilities. It was mostly photo there, mm-hmm. but I mean, they have the whole staff. The whole staff reads everything in the magazine, edits everything, you know, tries to point out mistakes and ads. They used to put everything up on a wall. Um, yeah, Matt Pruitt there and Mez and Tom Dugan, they taught me so much about you know, I was only, I remember having my first legal beer in the office, <laughs> you know, like it, it was, it was cool. Like at lunch, I got a beer when I turned 21, but I learned a ton. And then, you know, you keep learning a ton. You think, you know, a lot when you're 20, 21, but yeah, you don't know what you don't know yet. Yeah. You realize, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm still learning a lot, but you know, going into surfing magazine, it wasn't like a super easy transition because I was just a bit of a reckless child. So, you know, I got slapped on the wrist a bunch of times, (laughs) but ultimately like I was so passionate for surfing, so passionate for photography and, and also the people like just one of my favorite things at surfing magazine was we had this trip called Grom games. We did annually and it was taking the best 14 year old kids in the world on pretty much their first surf trip i mean some of them had been on surf trips because they were prodigies but first like magazine trip with their peers and um kind of like bringing them up and bringing them into like how to shoot photos and how to film and work with uh, media and we made it fun for them like had a bunch of games for them and stuff but that was kind of like my favorite thing to do was was work with like the kids and try to help bring that next generation up. And I think that was probably, yeah, that was probably my favorite thing going at the magazine. That was at surfing, yeah. right? Yeah. Because so at this time, this was probably like the mid 2000s, right? Well, no, it mid was like, late. I moved out there in 2008, so. Okay. So that's when I was living in Costa Rica and Nicaragua and you came down a couple years to go surfing and, and just like explore with me. I remember we, we would like take my, um, four by four and like just drive around Costa Rica, like go on our own surf trips. And then in Nicaragua too, we were the only people, literally the only foreigners within a couple hours, I think. Because at that time, the boom was closed. Yeah, the northern Nicaragua hadn't really been... Hadn't really been explored yet. No one I knew, or which was pretty much, you know, it's most people. The surf world's real small, so you almost know everyone. No one had been there yet. And I remember visiting you down there, and we got really good waves. It was in the winter, which is the off-season. Yeah. That's actually the last surf trip I've done for myself. Really? In that 2008? Was, that was January 2008. Yeah. That's the last time I've done a surf trip. I've been wow. on probably 200 surf trips since then, but none of them for me surfing. We got to go on Just, one. I've been, I was trying, I was about to go to Mexico right before this whole thing started. And really? then I got shut down. That was going to be my first surf trip in 12 years. Oh my God. You took the pictures. People who have listened to the podcast might have seen these because I've I've shown them in my talks. My first digital nomad picture is like me with my white MacBook at a Palapa in Nicaragua at this hotel I was living at. So it was like a closed down hotel because it was the off season. So the owner was back in the U.S. There were no vacation rentals in that town. There were no hotels. It was just like this little surf cabina and I had the whole thing to myself. It was like me and the Nicaraguan staff. And then you came down and I had been there for like one day or two days. And then we're surfing by ourselves in this like kind of sharky, like sketchy area with huge waves. And then you took this picture of me sitting there with my laptop, like working at the Palapa in 2008. And it's just like, 
I'm so glad you were there for that because I mean, that was a pretty crazy transition for me too, coming from real estate in Costa Rica and like working with a team of people and having kind of like a company culture and then going by myself to Nicaragua to like completely start over. I was so glad that you came. Yeah, I don't think we knew many people that were going outside the country to work. Mm-mm. It was only like a trip for a vacation or for surfing or whatever. It was never like, oh, I'm just going to go there. Yeah, it was a very like weird lifestyle that we had compared to our friends. But then it's cool that you brought the Groms back there a few years later, right? Yeah, that was the first Grom, the first Grom trip games. was there. And that trip had Kanoe Igarashi, Griffin Colapinto, and um, who else? Jake Marshall. Uh, these kids are all... Are they all pro surfers now? Yeah, Seth Moniz. Three of them are like the some of the best up-and-coming kids on the WSL tour now. And a few... Uh, the other two are on their way to wow. get in there. So it was a pretty crazy freak show crew. Yeah. And the girls too, like, um, Caroline, right? Yeah, we did take Caroline Marks on, on that, on a trip, like later on, that was like six years later or whatever. And now did she win the world title? No, she she almost did. Second place? Yeah. Yeah. This COVID took her first world title away from her. That's a bummer. She would win it this year. She's the, she's the best. So you've had a lot of, uh crazy travel experiences. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what are some of the more remote places that you've been to? I would say early in the days going to Indonesia was really remote. Going to the Mentawai Islands, just really far away. You got to go through, I don't know, more than 48 hours of travel. No, way more than that. And, uh, you're out in these islands in the middle of the Indian ocean but now it's like, it's just become, there's land camps everywhere and there's people everywhere and it's just become completely different. But back then it was all boats and just very far away. Like wooden boats, right? I mean, you're staying on nice boats or not so nice boats, depending on how much money you want to pay. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the locals are all in wooden boats and yeah, you would go over there and not go on whatever there was my space for like. 12 days or something you'd get back no emails nothing that's gone now i missed that that time that was actually really cool going off the grid yeah that's not really possible but i guess what other places are remote the caribbean i've explored a lot of the caribbean and that's been probably my favorite thing to do is just go to places down there that not they've they've been surfed before by people but no one that we know or whatever. You're, it feels like you're exploring. You have mm-hmm. that feeling that you used to be able to get back in like the 60s and 70s and when everyone was traveling around finding new waves, it feels like that. That's cool to do. That's like something I really like to do. But I think now those waves are all, the remote places are mostly cold, I would say. Go somewhere cold and you, know, you go up to Alaska or something. That's, you're going to find a lot of remote stuff up there, but I've never been. I want to go. What are some of your favorite islands in the Caribbean? Uh, Barbados, like I mentioned earlier, that's like, there's this wave soup bowl there. It's world-class. Uh, I love Puerto Rico. And then St. Bart's was also, was another one that I had a ton of fun. The waves weren't the best, but. I want to go there so bad. Yeah. Just the, it was a fun time there. We had. And tell us about uh, what happened after the hurricane. Didn't you get involved on there and go do some work? Oh, yeah. Uh, so Hurricane Irma, I was in Barbados again. And, um, yeah, the waves were really good. It's a kind of a heavy moment. Well, yeah, really heavy. Um, a local kid down there, I think he was 16 years old, Xander Venezia, he drowned. Um, during the session, hit his head on the reef and... Wait, you were there? Yeah. And he's a friend of ours. Oh, I forgot about that too. Yeah, so her, it's this huge hurricane and the waves are great. And then 
but you know, our, our friend passes away and we tried to save him, but just couldn't get him in in time. It was, it was just way too hard to, to get him to the beach. The current was ripping out and uh, CPR went, we did CPR for a long time. Dylan Graves and Nathan Florence, especially they were like trained in that, which we've all been trained more, way more since then. That was a big wake up call, but that hurricane was going by and a terrible experience. And then it goes and smashes into like a bunch of our favorite islands that we'd go down there to visit all the time. So we felt like we needed to do something to help. And uh, John Rose, who's the founder of Waves for Water, Ben Bourgeois, who's one of John's best friends and one of our really close friends, and Dylan Graves and I, met, we linked up with them and went down to St. Croix to base ourselves and go give filtration, water filtration systems out around like, the plan was to hit the pretty much every affected island and, you know, make sure everyone has clean drinking water, which is so important. And also, you know, the, all the plastic bottles that they bring in on ships that just sit in the heat and are just terrible for everything, yeah. you know, just to give these filtration systems, they mean a lot. So we went down there to do that. And then we got caught in uh, uh hurricane Maria. We just, we went right as soon as we got down there, this hurricane forms and smash us. And we were stuck on St. Croix. So we took that one. So on yeah. So you go to St. Croix to help in the after immediate aftermath of hurricane Irma. And weren't you guys with like the national guard and stuff because it was so kind of like sketchy? No, I mean, we were in a hotel. I mean, there was a bunch of other people there that were down to help because that was the only functioning Island with an airport. And, uh, but then that airport got trashed and then everything, nothing was functioning at that point. But the the good thing is we were able to help out right there and then like immediately. So we started yeah. helping people then and then expanded throughout all the Caribbean. Um, and all those places got hit so hard, but they've seemed like they've mostly bounced back. Even the Bahamas good. seems like it's bouncing back. That was even like another level this last summer on that hurricane. Cause hit. you have, we have a lot of friends out there too, who have like houses and surf camps and rentals and stuff. And that was even, I mean, that was awful. You almost went out there, right. With waves for water. Yeah. I, w I was thinking about going back, but I just couldn't, it was bad timing for me with work. But yeah. I think what those guys do, John Rose and the crew there is really, really good. They've done stuff all over the world helping yeah. out and they're just continuing to do that and hit places that a lot of people don't even think I, about. I donated to them. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, guys, if you want to check out Waves for Water. Um, I could speak for them just being legit for, you know, if you spend, if you donate money to some places, like such a small per percentage of that actually goes to helping. Whereas with Waves for Water, they're, they're really efficient and small how they use the resources. Yeah, they're a small crew and they make a big impact. Yeah. Man, you, you've been through so much and you've had near-death experiences too. And didn't you almost drown once in Puerto Rico surfing? Yeah, I did. I, I've almost drowned a couple of times, but I've learned a lot since then. And basically what you learn is not to panic ever. I get to hang around a bunch of big wave surfers, which I have no interest in, but they, you pick things up from them and there's these classes, these big wave risk assessment group classes that are for water safety. Since I'm shooting these people, I, I better be able to save them. Sometimes we're on jet skis, you know, sometimes we're just off and way down the beach and somewhere in Western Australia or somewhere far away where from people where something goes wrong you have to be able to react and do something about it so i end up being around all these people and they're some of the craziest people in the world and what i've learned is you can really survive a lot more than you think you can <laughs> so yeah i if i wouldn't if i knew then what i know now i wouldn't even have come close to dying in those times because i would have been way more prepared to take them on but yeah big wave surfing is or swimming out. I do a lot of swimming and I'm not a, I'm not someone who goes out at like huge pipeline or Chopu or some of the gnarliest waves. 
and swims is. I'd rather like be in the boat, which is not always safe either. Right. We've seen like YouTube videos of boats going over the falls at Chopu. Yeah. No, I'm basically, I'm, I, I'm pretty, I, I keep it pretty safe, but eventually you're going to be in a situation where something could go wrong or you, you basically have to swim because the surfers on the trip require you to swim because the waves are that good and you right. know that's the way you're going to get the best photos. Were you there when Evan almost drowned in Hawaii? Oh, I wasn't there for that. So that was like your best friend's brother well, I mean, or one of your best friends. You have a lot of best Evan friends. Evan and Eric are close. Since so we these are kids. like two pro surfers, Evan and Eric Geiselman, and then the younger one, did he hit his head or something? Yeah, at he pipe? hit his head and at pipeline and a bodyboarder got to him and brought was able to bring him in close enough to where the lifeguards could help and they resuscitated him on the beach. That was so lucky. Yeah. I give him a hug every time I see him. Oh. <laughs> All right, we have to talk about Mick Fanning. Can you tell us that story? Oh, the shark attack. Yeah. Oh, well, attack. The shark incident at Jeffrey's <laughs> Bay. 2016, I think. Yeah. Take us through or 2015, like, maybe. I, I can't remember. So, I think it was 2015, maybe. Yeah. Take us through that day or that morning or whatever was going on that day. Because you were swimming that day. Yeah. So I used to go around to a bunch of the world tour events and shoot photos of them like sports photographer style. And, uh, that day was the finals day at J Bay and I was covering the event. It was just me shooting for surfing magazine. So I was like, all right, I know I need to swim at some point in this day. And I was just kind of like over it cause it's just so sharky. The vibe is just beyond sharky, but the waves were good and the finals were going to happen. So I went out there and swam for a bit and it was a pretty weird feeling out there. You couldn't see like more than a foot underwater because it was so murky, mm. but it was sunny and it didn't feel like, you know, extra sketchy or anything. So you're um, the only one swimming in the water, but there's like a crowd on the There beach. was another photographer, Alan Mangaisen, swimming out there. He actually had a shark. Um, he wears a shark. Repellent? Ankle brace thing that sends that off a sonar. signal, which some people think actually attracts sharks I've to go heard check that it too. out. But either way, there's sharks in at J Bay. There's a lot of them. So yeah. I was in the water and I swam in right before it was uh, Kelly Slater versus McFanning in the semi. And right after their semi, I swam in because I knew I had to shoot the final and get like the winner getting chaired up the beach and everything. So I went in and I went to the top of the tower above the judges and above the, the whole contest site. And uh, I was up there. It was just kind of like a lull in the sets and you just heard this collective gasp from the crowd. Just everybody just, I'll never forget the sound. It was just so distinct because the, there's a lot of fans there and everyone's really into the surfing at J Bay. It's not like Huntington beach where no one's even watching. It's like people are core surf fans. So he gets, I look down and I see it. He's just getting drug underwater fighting the shark. And I'm, I just immediately started taking photos. I got a photo of him like where he's actually underwater and no one else can has that or can see it. Cause the camera angles were Up too, high. they were too low. So that the wave came in in front if you watch the webcast, you can't see it. The waves in front when that happens. But I got all these photos of that. Because uh, you were up on the scaffolding? Yeah, I was up on the very top part you could be. And then, you know, we didn't really know what happened. But then he, he went to the boat and the, the boat driver picked him up. And uh, wow, he's just really lucky. Like he got hit by a great white, but the great white wasn't attacking him. It maybe just ran into him, bumped him. And he got tangled with it and uh, like ripped his, broke his leash. Like, I think he got, maybe got caught in his leash. It was a crazy experience, but the first contest I've ever been to where there was no winner, it was a tie. Second play, uh, they oh. got equal second. I didn't even realize Bacon, that. and Julian Wilson, yeah. <laughs> They're just like canceled. It, Game over. Yeah, it was a weird after party that night. It was like, it was just real emotional and everyone was just thankful because Mick Fanning is the most... Well, he's retired now, but he was the most popular surfer on tour by far. He was like, everyone loves him. He's just such a good guy and he's Australian. He, he, he like, 
works really hard, but he also like parties at times. <laughs> he's just, he's just a great, he's a great person. And so like everyone, him getting hit by a shark was like, if we would have lost McFanning, you know, that would have been yeah, horrendous. That was a mat. That was so crazy. I'm sure a lot of people listening saw the like viral clips of that going on. I think I watched it like 10 times. And then also a like weird coincidence with Mick Fanning is that in 2003, I think you know this story, I was living in Australia studying abroad and Mick Fanning was already like pretty famous at that point. And one day my friend and I, my roommate, Jackie, we paddled across this inlet that's super sharky, like full of tiger sharks and stuff to this island called South Stradbroke Island where they have like wallabies and stuff like that. And it's a super fun beach break. I was actually saying this morning that it was reminding me of it. And um, I surfed all day, like we surfed for six hours or something like that. And then on my last wave, some guy dropped in on me and I like went over the falls and I got so worked and like held under. It was really big and really shallow beach break. And I, I got like rolled up onto the sand basically because like the waves were breaking right at the sand. And I just was so exhausted because we had like paddled over there and most people take jet skis. And I'm just like laying on the sand and I open my eyes and like Mick Fanning is standing over me and he's like, are you okay? Because <laughs> like they, uh, him and Joel Parkinson and like all their friends were standing up on the dunes because they had finished surfing and they saw the whole thing. And he like ran down to see if I was okay. That's the kind of person he is. And then years later, there you were shooting him while he's getting in a fight with a shark. Yeah. So yeah, he is a good person. I'm glad that that thing that that worked out. But let's talk about something not life or death. <laughs> um, what are some of the uh, highlights of your career? I don't know. Highlights. I guess getting a cover shot was always a big deal back in the day. So getting my first cover shot, um, that was like 2006. I was still working at ESM and I got to cover a surfing magazine of Dylan Graves. That was a huge deal for me. But then... Was that the yellow and black one? Yeah, it was like a sunset air pump. Mm-hmm. And, and Indo, and, uh, right? Yeah. So that was a big deal. And then I did a couple of these Red Bull Illum photo contests. So the first one was 2007. And I had like one of the category winner photos for that one. They took us to Aspen, Colorado. I saw snow for the first time. That was awesome. That was a great, like one of the best experiences of my life for sure. Because now I love snowboarding. I'm addicted to that. Is that how you got introduced to snowboarding? Yeah. Yeah. I'd never seen snow before. I was probably on the worst gear ever, but I just (laughs) learned it. And then I did that again. I did that same one five years later or something and I didn't win but I made the final they sent me to Hong Kong for that that was cool but yeah I guess there's not really like accomplishments I guess just personal personal like photo accomplishments I mean I would just say that the one that sticks out is this I went to Tahiti with uh the Florence brothers and Koa Rothman and we got the this wave not Chopu but a different wave a right, like as good as it's ever been. And I got this photo of John John just standing in a gigantic, perfect blue barrel that will just freak people out forever. It's just like the most perfect wave. I know, I knew right at that time, like I'll never see a better wave than that in my life because wow. I've never seen a better wave than that, like anywhere. So I have that photo and that's probably like, yeah, that's probably just the one that sticks out the most to me is, Anytime I think of best photo I've taken, I I knew right then I would never get another better photo, a better photo than that. Wow. It's so even better than Fiji because you've been to Tavarua, right? Yeah, I've been to Fiji a few times. Um, but yeah, that's great. That's a great wave and everything. But it's actually kind of tough to photograph to make it look like as good as the wave actually is because it's the reason it's so good is it it's a point break down a reef that breaks 
you know, it could be like a 15 second ride that's perfect the entire way, but just taking one frame of that never really tells like the whole tale of, of what it's doing. Yeah. But you're doing a lot of video now, right? Well, yeah, I do a bunch of video kind of just based off the needs for the job, I guess. Yeah. That's interesting. So it seems like whenever people have traveled a lot, like their favorite places or favorite times, like aren't necessarily some super glamorous or like exciting destination. It's just like a moment in time, just a time and a place with people, like people that you like and that one frame of that one wave. Yeah. I mean, well, when you're talking about like best times and the good times of getting good waves are great, but normally you're so burnt after those days that you're almost like can't even celebrate them. You're just like so tired and drained. The most fun times I think are actually the trips where the waves are terrible. <laughs> and you, But yeah, you have to be with good people. You have to be with your friends, which you usually are, but you know, there's certain people that are, you know, positive and certain people that are more negative. But if you're with the positive ones and you're going through a negative situation, it's just funny to laugh at the shit you get yourself in <laughs> and like just how bad it can really get. I mean, <laughs> yeah, when things go so wrong and it's like Murphy's law and it can't get any worse and it just keeps getting worse. Yeah. It's just funny. It's I, I've always like been able to laugh at myself and I like laughing at others too, you know, for their <laughs> blunders, but it's just fun when you're in a shitty situation sometimes. It's a more memorable. You bond in those times. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, didn't you, um, so you were roommates with Fisher for a couple years in California, the DJ. Yeah, no, not a couple years, a couple months. Oh, a couple months. Because we got kicked out. <laughs> that's not surprising. Didn't you guys get skunked on a trip to Mexico? No, we got absolutely the best waves ever in Mexico. We got skunked on a trip to the Philippines. Oh, okay. But they okay. actually scored. I had to leave. I had to go. I was actually moving in. We didn't live together yet, but I was moving into the house that we would eventually live together in on that trip. And so I had to do that, and I had to go on another a swimsuit trip for the surfing magazine swimsuit issue, which I'm not bummed about, <laughs> to Dominican Republic. So I had to leave right before, like, a good swell came. They extended their trip, but I, I couldn't stay. Oh, but yeah, we've got, we got great waves in Mexico. That's probably the best trip I've ever been on. I remember like cracking up at the videos of you guys just like getting really drunk at night. Cause oh, there's we probably nothing drunk. to do. I mean, we were just have a couple beers. beer, you know, you just have beers after a surf, especially in Mexico because <laughs> anything cold will be good. You just want anything, <laughs> the coldest thing you can put your lips on. So, uh, yeah, Fisher is just funny. He's the funniest person I've ever been around. Um, the fact that he's a DJ. Now, I don't know anything about that. I mean, he was DJing at our house and he would like, he was messing around with stuff for years, but we never took it seriously. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I mean, I don't know who did, but whatever it is, he's just, he's so charismatic and so funny. <laughs> That he can pretty much just like stand up in a room and like yell something and everyone will just start dying laughing. And like, I mean, he does, he is the center of attention. So it doesn't surprise me to see him blow up. He's like exactly like his social media. Like that's well, like that him. is authentically him for sure. <laughs> he is, he's every bit of that weird. Oh, so funny. Oh, is there anywhere that you haven't been that you want to go? I mean, I like going anywhere new. If there's a new place that I haven't been to, I would love to go check it out. So some of the Vans duct tape contests have taken me to those places because they do a new location every time. Yeah, I mean, I have, I've been to so many places like repeatedly. I haven't been to like a lot of other, I haven't been to a lot of places, just the same places over and over again, it seems like. So <laughs> any new, new destination I like to go to, like, even uh, we went to China, to this Hainan Island in China. That was actually one I didn't want to go to. I was like, I don't want to go over there. 
the waves aren't going to be good. And Oh, it's for a contest, right? Yeah, for the Vans duct tape. And China's just not like a place you just dream of going to. But that was a amazing trip too, actually. They have a cool surf scene there and they have a couple fun waves. And it's actually, we stayed in a really nice hotel and the whole crew hung out the whole time because no one knew anyone. No one knew the language. And it like brought everyone together more than ever. So it was, uh, that ended up being a really fun trip. But yeah, I you always appreciate things more as you get older and you appreciate Definitely new places. Is that when you went to Japan too? Yeah, Japan. I'd never been there and that was kind of surprised because that place has great waves. Yeah. But we didn't get great waves when I was there. So do you, like, you have such a positive attitude about everything and you've always been so hardworking. Like, do you worry at all about, you know, this pandemic or the future? Because you've already been hit with so many things. Like even in your own career, having like your magazine, you know, the magazine that you worked for shut down the whole magazine industry going out of business. Do you think that that people should just keep reinventing themselves and like just roll with the punches? Is that part of life? Yeah, obviously you have to do that. But I've always kind of just tried to live off such little money and save everything that I could to give myself a buffer knowing that potentially there's going to be a time where just money just doesn't come in. And so I I need to prepare for that. And I have, but ultimately I I just don't need that much to be happy. So I don't need to like live in like really nice place. I don't need to have all this stuff. I just, as long as I can surf, you know, spend time with my daughter and, um, hopefully snowboard sometimes, which costs a little bit more money, but I built (laughs) out my car to make it less money. Um, yeah, I don't need much. I just, so yeah, obviously there's a worry of during these times, but it's not like it's all going to be fine as long as they don't shut us down for surfing anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that traveling has given you that perspective because You've been to so many places. You've you have friends from so many countries around the world, and you've seen such a range of happiness and poverty levels. Yeah, you that traveling gives you the best perspective ever. I'm I want to bring my daughter to places so she can see that too, so she can know what you know what it's like. How we have it is really good, and some people don't have it that good. But yeah, you can still be happy with almost nothing. And the other thing about traveling is it just teaches you to just be patient. Like there's nothing, sometimes you it's just, it's out of your control and you just have to just sit there and, and ride it out. And so, <laughs> I mean, I think that's a huge lesson I learned early on. I don't try to like force anything or, or freak out and scream at people. I just like, okay, this is how it's going to be sometimes. Okay. We'll just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. That's how I feel about this whole thing is I'm just going to roll with it. And yeah, I'm not traveling. I'm not making as much money or whatever, but it's life has almost like never been better in a way. Yeah. You're getting more quality time with your daughter and I've never surfed this much. Not since I was a little kid. Wow. So that's fun. Yeah. Okay. Let's do a quick lightning round. Okay, what uh, camera do you shoot with or cameras? I use a Canon 1DX Mark II. What is your favorite surf trip or favorite surf destination? I would always say just anywhere in the Caribbean. What's your favorite non-surf destination you've been to? Somewhere in the mountains, snowboarding, so wherever the snow is good. Um, do you have any hacks for finding cheap flights or any like kind of travel hacks? Cause you plan a lot of trips for people. Uh, I no, there's no like secret to the flights, but I mean, I use, I kind of cross reference things, but I guess I would just always say use the best credit card. That's going to give you the best points. Agree. Do you have any jet lag hacks when you're doing those 48 hour flights around the world? I plan ahead for, I'll just look at the times of the flights and the time at home. And a lot of times I'll try to stay up 
maybe even like a whole night at the destination I'm in, which will make me sleep on the plane to get me back on that schedule. But it's definitely not scientific. It's just more, it's just drink a lot of beer some nights and stay up. <laughs> um, how do you stay motivated to work at home? Oh, that's hard. I think just finding the time when there's certain times of the day I'll be motivated and certain times I just won't. So and it's different every day. So whenever I get in the zone and start firing on all cylinders, I just try to stick with that and ride it, ride that as long as I can. Until you run out of yeah, flow. And, and then I'll get, you know, distracted and do something else. Take a break. What is one photography tip that all amateur photographers should know or like any non-photographers for taking better travel photos? Like using a phone or using a... Yeah, like using an iPhone. That's a tough one, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> the best thing you could do is probably just get like one of those apps like Snapseed or something to edit your photos with so oh, they don't yeah. look all the same flatness of a regular iPhone photo. What is that little camera that you take around? That's an EOS M100 or something. Okay. I want to get one of those. That's uh, all right. Okay. Or yeah. you just get a film camera. Just get a little film camera and be really selective about the photos you take. Only take like, try to take one, maybe take one roll for the whole trip and try to like space out 36 photos. Oh, that's a cool idea. Then you, it will... It, what it'll make you do is not take bullshit and take like a photo of everything. It's like you try to capture like actual good photos and you value that one click. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Because like sometimes, yeah, having endless amounts of images on your digital camera or your iPhone or like on your car, your SD card, it's like you just don't think about it as much anymore. And then you sometimes never even look back or I never look more. back at the photos. Yeah, less is more. Do you have any words of advice to people who are like, they have things that they've wanted to do, like maybe for work and their career that they've wanted to pursue, but they've just been uncertain about it. And so they're kind of staying in a job or in a situation that they don't like, but they're just kind of like waiting for the right time. What would you say to, to people that haven't really started like living life on their own terms yet? I think you got to do whatever makes you happy. Like you don't need to be tied to something that doesn't make you happy. You can get away from it if you really want to, if you kind of stop making excuses for yourself, just like what's the worst case scenario. I mean, the worst case scenario is probably not going to happen, but you know, just, I would just say be realistic, but go for it. Nice. And what's next for you? Do you have any, goals or things that you haven't achieved yet or any plans or any ideas of things you want to do in like the next five to 10 years? I mean, I kind of feel like I've gotten this body of work now. I have a lot of lineup photos of a lot of the best waves around the world, which I really enjoy looking at, like the best waves on their best days. I hope to just keep expanding on that. And then I also, I've been working on like a personal series of slow shutter speed wave stuff that's over the past, mostly in Hawaii over the past like six or so years. And I just want to kind of keep working on that and maybe eventually it'll become something, but make like a book or sell them online. I don't even care about that. I, I it's not money really. It's just more just personal, like having a series of photos that's cohesive and, um, you know, stops people to admire them. That's cool. I love your pictures. And where can people see your pictures or if they want to follow you online? What's really the best just place? only, I just have an Instagram, Jim McCain. Uh, I don't even have a website. I've never had a website, which is stupid. I own your domain, by the way. Yeah. I just, yeah, I should have a website. I just never, I don't we'll know, make I it happen. Never put it together. Too many, too much time spent editing other people's photos and not even, and not, Kind of neglecting my own. And how did you get the nickname Jim McCain? Uh, Ryan Ripko, my friend here in St. Augustine. He just thought I would come into his house every Friday with all my stuff 
and stay there during the weekends. And it, he said, every time I came through a house, came through the house, it was like a hurricane ripped <laughs> through it. And uh, he just started calling me Jim again. <laughs> um, can we expect any more that's bullshit articles coming no, out? That's no over. More, no negative articles from me. I will, it's not worth writing negative things. Even if you mean well, it's not taken the right way. Yeah, true. Well, thanks, Jimmy, for coming on Badass Digital Nomads and uh, sharing your crazy travel stories with us. And love you. Okay, love you too. See you later. <laughs> Bye. I hope you enjoyed this interview with my brother. You can follow his work again on Instagram at Jim McCain. And thank you for listening. Let me know what other badasses you want to hear from by filling out the podcast survey linked in the show notes. And make sure to leave a review wherever you listen from. See you next week.